Psalm chapter 23 is where we've been this summer, walking verse by verse through this most well-known psalm. So let's read it all together, and then I'll pray for us. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. I hear a really weird echo. Does anybody else hear it? All right. I can pretend like I don't, but it is going to throw me off. Where's it coming from? Oh, you know, I think I can fix it. Did that do it? All right. It's IT 101. <laughs> we'll plug it back in later. I'm too simple to hear all the things going on. All right, Psalm 23. We have what we need, right? <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. And even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. King Jesus, you are the good shepherd. Help us to know what it is to be led by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> a number of years ago, um, there was a counselor, writer, author named David Pallison, and uh, he has since gone on to be with Jesus, but he, uh, at one point in meditating on Psalm 23, wrote what he called the anti-psalm. And as we come to the end of Psalm 23, I wanted to start off and read this this morning as a, kind of a way of introduction. <clears throat> what would the opposite of Psalm 23 look like? And here's what David Pallison said. I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist. I want to do what I want, when I want, how I want. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by emptiness and futility, shadows of death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road, but I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life <clears throat> protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. Are my friends really my friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. Will I just be obliterated into nothingness? Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into void? Sartre said, hell is other people, but I also have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death, and then I die. 
And I think David Pallison does a good and creative job of showing us what would the opposite of, our li- of Psalm 23 look like if it was our life and we lived it. It would look much like this anti-Psalm where we're left by ourselves to fend for ourselves, only to find that our life ends in death. And we're left with what, nothing? What's interesting about coming to the end of Psalm 23 <clears throat> is how slowly we've walked through each of these verses. And then we find ourselves in verse 6, which if you take it in isolation, um, all week I felt like it was almost too pure. I didn't want to mess it up. Uh, it's a bit like, um, <laughs> this is the, the male in me. It's like having a cut of meat that's so good that you're like, I'm not used to having this. And if I try to cook this at my house, it's not going to be good anymore. So I don't really know what to do with this. I ought to take it to a restaurant and ask them to cook it for me. And that's kind of how I felt about verse 6. It's so pure as it stands on its own that it was hard to figure out what what all can we say about Psalm 23, verse 6. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. We could almost just sit and think about that and pray in light of that and pray that for our family and our friends and people we know and love, that that would be true of them. But one thing that that kept haunting me is that verse 6 comes at the very end of the psalm. Almost as if to say, you can't experience verse six unless you have first understood that the Lord is your shepherd. Unless you've first been led by God. Unless you first come to these places where he provides for you and gives you rest. Unless you first walk down the paths of righteousness he leads you down. Unless you first walk through the dark valley unless you first had a table prepared for you in the presence of your enemies, and unless you've realized he's anointed you with his presence and your cup actually overflows, then can you say, Psalm 23, verse six. It's almost as if we can only see Psalm 23, verse six in retrospect on our life. It's hard to take this verse and look ahead. But as someone, if you live, uh, as someone who lives verses one through five, it's almost like we look back at the dark valley that we didn't want to walk into, and we say, you, can I tell you something about that dark valley? His goodness followed me there. It chased me down. His faithful love never left me once. What about the presence of my enemies? Well, I didn't want to fight that battle. I was terrified. None of our people thought we could ever have victory over that giant and those people. But now I look back and I see that his faithful love was there. And it chased me down. So we can really only understand verse 6, it feels like in retrospect. Right? But we know we have this verse that invites us to live like this in the present every day. The first thing I'd like for us to look at from verse 6 is God's disposition, his attitude toward us. What's his attitude toward you? How in your life have you experienced the attitude of people who are in authority over you? Have you gotten the sense that they like you? That they love you? Maybe both, maybe not both. Have you gotten the sense that you're just in the way? That you can't do anything right? Maybe you've had a teacher and it just seems like they're out to get you. Maybe you've had a boss and you thought, there's nothing I can do to please you. 
And I wonder how all of those experiences of our whole life comes to bear now on how we view God's disposition to us. What does God think of you? You ever wake up and wonder that? God, what do you think of me this morning? Or maybe at the end of the day, God, what do you think of me after I've just lived in that way for the last 12, 14, 18 hours? Well, what do you think of me now? What we see in Psalm 23, verse 6 is exactly how God thinks of you. That his goodness and his faithful love will pursue you. Now, I have read for most of my conscious, uh, memorable life, the ESV, which says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. And mercy is tough for me. What does mercy mean? Faithful love, I think, does a better job for what this word is. This word shows up all over your Bible. If you have an ESV, it will show up a lot of times as steadfast love. And sometimes it will be paired with the word faithfulness, steadfast love and faithfulness. But this word is so much more rich than just God loves you. It's so much more rich than mercy even. It's the word that's used to describe someone's loving covenantal commitment towards someone else. This is Ruth faithfully loving Naomi. And after Ruth's husband and Naomi's husband died, Ruth, the Moabite woman, says, where you go, I'll go. Your God is my God. Your people are my people. She was knit to her. Mercy, to me, doesn't do justice for that. Steadfast love, faithful love, that does justice to that. Faithful love is this picture of God has committed to you in relationship and will never let you go. What about goodness? Boy, that's vague. Be good. Be good today. My dad would joke when he dropped us off at school. I guess it was his I don't know, somebody really old in his family. I don't think it was his parents. It was like a, an aunt or a grandmother or something. Uh, wouldn't say be a good boy. She'd say be a purdy boy. Be a purdy boy now. And I guess that goes with the southern saying of like ugly. Like don't be ugly. Be pretty. Be a, be a good boy. Good is so vague. What, what could that mean? That God's goodness would follow us or pursue us. Well, it would would help us to know that this is the word he uses in the first page of your Bible. That God sees over and over that his creation is good and he delights in it. Stop for just a moment and think about that. In Genesis 1, when God creates something good, he doesn't so quickly move on to the next thing to create that's good, though he surely can. He stops, he observes it, contemplates it and he names it as this is, he looks and he says, this is good. And then he creates human beings and he says, this is very good. Looks over the whole thing and he says, this is very good. And it says God's goodness and his faithful, covenantal, steadfast, committed, relational love. Now again, translation I grew up on says, follow us, but but I'm reading the CSB this morning, and it says, pursues me. I think it was Eugene Peterson. He translates this, and he says, it chases me down. Now, that gives a much different sense, right? We're watching a cop show right now, and some scenes they're following, and some scenes they're pursuing. 
Those are very different scenes of that show. You're following, it's like, you're, you're kind of always there. They're maybe observing what the movements are of this person they're trying to maybe build a case against. But when they're in pursuit, there is no doubt. It is loud. It is fast. It is moving everyone else out of the way so they can get to the person they're pursuing. When they say, we are in pursuit, that is different than when they say, we are following. And so I, I wonder what it is that he's trying to say by you. He's... We are pursued by this faithful love. We are pursued by this goodness of God. Well, I think the way poetry works, this is like my Bible nerd side of the stand. When we read poetry in our Old Testament, if you could grasp one thing to help you, think of parallel. Hebrew poets would use parallelism to, <clears throat> to play off of each other and inform what they meant. So what they're doing right here is they're saying, goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Now wait a minute, I have a little indication here. All the days of my life sounds awful similar to as long as I live. Maybe there's a little bit of a parallelism going on here. How do we get God's goodness and his faithful love? We dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, house of the Lord would, be, would have been a way to talk about the temple, which would have been a way to talk about the presence of God. So how is it that we get God's goodness and his faithful love? Through God's presence. God's goodness is not something, it's not a thing that he gives us. Sometimes we struggle with that. God, I need your grace. To pray for God's grace is to pray for God himself. To get God's goodness is to get God himself. To get his faithful love, we know in the New Testament they say God is love. So if we're going to get God's goodness, his faithful love, what we're getting is his presence. He himself is following us. He's pursuing us. He is chasing us down all the days of our lives. And I think that's where we hit our first hiccup in this passage. And we've got to stop for a minute, and instead of reading the passage, we've got to let the passage read us. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. Well, I can name a few other things that have pursued me some days. Oh, sorrow has pursued me some days. It feels like it follows closely. Loss has pursued me some days. It feels like I can't shake it. And it is close behind me. I can tell you some sins that I struggle with that seem to pursue me and chase after me and don't let me go. Suffering, broken relationships. I can tell you some other things that it feels like they've pursued me. It doesn't feel like only goodness and faithful love has pursued me. It feels like some other things pursue me too. So if we're letting the passage read us, what that means is we're letting the, the passage pull out the truth of our heart, the truth of our life, and we're holding that up to God in prayer. So I'm gonna ask you, is this what you believe about how God relates to you? Do you believe God's presence goes with you everywhere and with his presence comes his goodness and his faithful love? Is that your experience? Do I believe that I move in and out of God's presence every day or maybe even many times a day? Are there times that I think I'm, I'm closer to God or I'm farther away from God? 
When life gets hard, is God still with me, chasing me down in love and goodness? Do you feel like God has abandoned you? Do you feel like you've done something to push God away or that there are certain things you can do that make God really upset? And he might look at you and say, you know what, I'm gonna need a little time after that. You need to go think about that and I'm gonna go over here and when you're ready to talk, you come back. Does suffering in my life mean that God's not with me in that? We might tend to think that um, in our moments of being high capacity people, which we pride ourselves in, being able to handle life on our own, in our strength, that's when God is most near to us. We feel good, we focus on the positive emotions we have, life is generally under control, things are generally moving in a direction we like and enjoy, life is good. God is near, I am blessed. But when we face hard things or suffering or sadness or sin, we aren't sure what to think. Did God pull back? Where did the blessing go? Where did the presence go? Where did the goodness and love go? Are there days that it's hard for you to think that Psalm 23, 6 is true? Are there days that maybe halfway through you stop and you go, it doesn't feel like your faithful love is following me anymore? So the question for us is, when we have days like that, when we face suffering and sadness and sin, does all of that mean that God's not with us in love? I think that's a question we've all probably wrestled with, whether or not we've named it like that or not. Do the hard things in my life mean that God is not with me in love anymore? Well, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to answer that in a, in a little bit of a roundabout way. John 17, verse 26. Jesus is praying for his followers. Followers that he now calls friends, according to a couple chapters earlier. He says, I have made, he's praying, remember, I've made your name, God, known to them, and I'll continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. What kind of love is it that has been in Jesus from the Father? Well, conveniently, I didn't put it in my notes, but it's one verse earlier, verse 23. Oh, it's not verse 23. It's the love that the Father has given him before the foundation of the world. He's praying in verse 23 that the world would know that you have sent me, Jesus, and have loved the people, the followers, them, just as you've loved me. So Jesus is praying in this passage, like over and over repeating, I know you've loved me with an eternal kind of love. Jesus had the eternal love of God set on him before the foundation of the world, throughout his life on earth, through his temptation in the wilderness, through torture, beatings, mockery, and even crucifixion. And I, and I just, I saw this image yesterday. There's a, an old Scottish preacher named Sinclair Ferguson. And he's a delight to listen to because he's old and Scottish. And um, <clears throat> there's this little picture of a quote from, from a message he'd preached. 
and he paints a picture of the crucifixion, a, a time I think we struggle with maybe what to do with this passage. Jesus, on the cross in Matthew 27, we learn he cries out to God in a prayer while he's hanging on the cross from Psalm chapter 22. And here's what Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, we're kind of met with a dilemma because Apostles' Creed and everything makes us think Jesus is equal to God, their relationship has never been broken, so what's going on on the cross? That would make Jesus say, why have you abandoned me? Jesus is facing one of those times that he might say, in his flesh, but we know he's perfect, so somehow he doesn't say this, but maybe you and I might think, God, it doesn't look like your goodness and faithful love have followed him there. If there was any place in the first century that God's goodness and faithful love could not follow someone, it would seem to be the shameful mockery of humanity that was the act of crucifixion. Embarrassing someone's dignity while also taking their life. This is a moment that we might look at Jesus' life and say, has he lost it all right there? Because he takes the words from Psalm 22 that says God's abandoned him. Is this it? Is this the end? Well, we know it's not the end, but Sinclair Ferguson posed this question. While Christ is on the cross singing Psalm 22, what's the Father singing? Have you ever thought of that? We focus on the perspective of the human Jesus and how he's going through suffering, both spiritual and physical. And he's saying, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And Sinclair Ferguson says, what's the father singing? And he quotes the old hymn that maybe the father is singing, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. While Jesus is on the cross, and we're all wondering, is this the time that his love and goodness has stopped following Jesus? This would seem to be the time Jesus himself is saying, God, you've abandoned me, and the Father is saying, my Jesus, you are mine. If it's ever that I've loved you, it's in this moment. Maybe the Father, if we're gonna stick in the Psalms, is singing Psalm 89, a psalm that celebrates God's love and faithfulness to David and the line of David and the future son of David who would be the reigning king forever. In Psalm 89, verse 33, maybe this is what the father was saying. But I will not withdraw my faithful love from him or betray my faithfulness. And then Jesus prays in John 17 that we would be loved with that same faithful, never-ending love of God. If God's faithful love followed Jesus through temptation, through beatings and mockery and crucifixion, if God's faithful love followed Jesus through the grave, into death, we say, and we'll explain this in a few months when we preach this line of the Apostles' Creed, he descended to the place of the dead. He was really dead. Not pretend dead, he was really dead. If God's faithful love followed him there, then won't it follow you too? 
God's love chased Jesus into the grave and then right back out. Won't his love chase you down to on your worst of days? Won't God's love chase us in such a way that we can turn to Romans 8, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, and read this beautiful passage. What then are we to say about these things? If God's for us, who's against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God's the one who justifies Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Here's the question that we're asking. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? That is the most relevant question that you will ever ask in your entire life. Who can separate you from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it's written, because of you we're being put to death all day long. We're recounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, Psalm 23, verse six can only be true for us because of Jesus. So what is there for us to do in this passage? Not a whole lot. Maybe there's a word at, at, at the end there where it talks about the house of the Lord. It says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. So dwell, remain, abide in the presence of God. But as we face these days that we are asking, can God's love follow me here? Did God's goodness really pursue me into this valley, into this desert place, into this temptation? God's love and goodness pursue me here. When we're forced to ask that, what we need to stop and be careful of is that we don't reinterpret God's presence in light of our lives. So what that means is we walk through circumstances in our lives and then we look back and we say, well, God must not be with me. What we instead get to do is we get to reinterpret our lives in light of God's presence. We might think God's closer to us when we're doing better and life feels under control, but in reality, if you read these words, you will learn that God works in the exact opposite way. Ask our friend, the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he tells a story of being, in his words, caught up to the third heaven, whatever that means. He's so caught up in the presence of God. But in order to keep him humble, God gave him a thorn in the flesh that he wrestled with and asked God, take this away. And God said, no. I'm gonna keep you humble and dependent on me. And so in Paul's weakness, he learned that is actually the place where he most thrives. In suffering, when we share the song we sang earlier, when we share the sufferings of Christ, if I die with you, I know I will rise with you. 
So the invitation of the Christian life is not an invitation to a path that's up and to the right. That is promising you increased riches, increased comfort, increased status in your job and society. It's an invitation to follow the Lord Jesus Christ who made his way to the cross and turns to you and invites you to take the same. But we must remember that facing those hard things does not mean his love has left us. It usually means the exact opposite. It is in his love that he has led us to those places where our hearts are purged of the things that we were holding on to too tightly. That we are forced to come face to face with exactly how fragile we are, how dependent we are, how sinful we are, how broken we are, how broken the world is, how things don't work right, and we're faced with a choice, what am I gonna do when I face this brokenness? Am I gonna turn back to myself and say, I can figure this out, I can crowbar my life into some semblance of shape that I want it to be in, or are we gonna surrender to God and say, the world doesn't work the way it's meant to because you were intended to be king over everything. And we've turned inward, turned away from you, so nothing works right. When everything falls apart, we might think God stepped back and left us. But he often intentionally draws us into those times because that's where we learn best exactly how much we need him. With God, we can be assured that even the worst things that we go through, we're still with him in goodness and in love. One very simple caveat, that does not mean God thinks every bad thing that happens to you is good. That's not what this means. This does not mean that we believe in some sadistic God who enjoys bringing harm to his people because there is some greater good that lies behind it. That's not what this text is saying. In fact, the Bible doesn't seem to answer exactly that question. Instead, what it's dealing with is the reality that we will go through hard times. The question is, what will we do in them? And the fact that God can use and redeem them when they happen. The Bible's not much interested in why they happen. That seems to be one of those thoughts that are too high for us. But we can be assured that as we walk through the worst of times, God is still with us in goodness and in love. So I, I thought of some people that need encouragement today. Some people here today need encouragement that God has not left you. He's not outpaced you in a way where he's waiting for you to catch up. He hasn't left you because you're undesirable for his company. God hasn't left you because you've forgotten to read the Bible for a week or two or six months. God's not left you because of that. No, you should read your Bible. You'll meet God there. But you need to understand what, just how pervasive the presence of God is. Almost every verse in Psalm 23 could have the main point of all these sermons the last six weeks. The main point could have been God is with you. And some of you need to be encouraged this morning that God has not left you. Some need encouragement that God won't leave you. And we live with the fear in the future of like what's going to happen. What's going to happen with my job? What's going to happen with my kids? What's going to happen with my church? What's going to happen with my friends? And we live... Um, like Charles Spurgeon said, worrying more about things that will never happen than we do about things that are actually happening in our life today. 
And some of us need the encouragement that no matter what happens, God's not leaving. Because his is a faithful love, a covenantally committed love that's not only committed in the high times and the good times and the times when you're pulling your weight. God won't leave you. And some of us here need encouragement when we hear God's chasing us down with his presence. We might brace for impact. Gosh, what's he gonna say when he finds me? Some of you need this encouragement. God's not chasing you down to scold you. God is not chasing you down to scold you. Do you know why? God is chasing you down to tell you that as high as the heavens are above the earth, this, receive this as God's word to you this morning. This is God speaking to you from Psalm 103. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is my faithful love for you. Hey, if you can measure the east from the west, that's how far I've removed your transgressions from you. Just like a father has compassion on his children, that's how I have compassion on you because I know what you're made of. I know that you're just simply dust. Hey, I'm compassionate and gracious to you. I'm slow to anger towards you. I will not always accuse you or be angry forever. I, I have not dealt with you like your sins deserve. I'm not gonna repay you according to your iniquities. God is not chasing you down to scold you. He's chasing you down to renew you with his love. Because God knows that if we're gonna change, we don't need more rules. We don't need more scolding or hand slapping. We need to reckon with just how loved we really are. And then our whole life would be different. What would it mean to live every moment of your life knowing that God is chasing you down with this kind of goodness and faithful love? Wouldn't it produce confidence in your life to know that God's with you, wouldn't it produce a freedom, hope, and courage? And then I'm wondering, what would our lives look like if we received this love of God? What would it look like for us to then, in turn, have it overflow towards others? Could you imagine the kind of people you would bless if you then embodied this kind of love, that you chased people down in goodness and faithful love? You chase them down not to scold them, but to welcome them in love. How different would our world be? Would our church be? Would our, our community right here in Cobb County, how different would it be if that's the kind of people we were? Because we've been chased down by the love of God. Now we, in turn, let that love flow through us to others and give them precisely what they need. So as we come to an end, I, I wanna invite you to just take on an attitude of prayer. I'm gonna give you a couple minutes to respond to God's word with this prayer of reflection. Reflect on Psalm 23, particularly this last verse. And I'm gonna read it again for you slowly. And I just want you to consider where is God asking you, inviting you to slow down? What part of this do you most need to hear this morning? So listen in an attitude of prayer. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord 
as long as I live.